Okay, so if you haven't been here, we are in a study of the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible. The book of the Bible that really tells us where in the world are we going as a planet. And this is the second part. Uh, we're in Revelation 6, if you want to turn there. Let me say something about Revelation. I say it every week. It's the only book that promises a blessing. I feel blessed. I hope you do. And I'm not here to make the book of Revelation easy. It already is. Okay? So I know we're all in a different place in our understanding of it. Some of you may have been taught it's not worth reading. It's too difficult to understand. Uh, those things are not true. There are a couple places in Scripture, if you can go and read it and understand it, it will help you. Daniel chapter 2, Daniel chapter 9, Matthew 24. I feel like I'm reading school closings. First uh, and Second Thessalonians. If you read those, they will help you. Maybe go back and listen to some of the messages. You can always pick up a commentary in our bookstore. Uh, the more you can learn, the better off you'll be. Now, we have all seen bumper videos like this of signs of the times of our age, and then someone gets up and says, this will usher in the second coming of Christ and the end of the world, right? We've all seen that. We've seen guys with sandwich boards in airports and other places telling us the end is near. And this has been going on for a long, long time. Almost all of the signs you'll ever hear about seem to be doom and gloom, right? You know, we saw it in the video, tsunamis and earthquakes, natural disasters, economic upheavals, upstart political uh, rogue nations, pandemic diseases, you know, we've seen it all, right? Now, there's a reason why this bent has been around, and that's because Jesus one day, when he took his disciples to the Mount of Olives, they were looking at the splendor of the temple, one of the seven wonders of the world, and Jesus said, there's coming a day where this temple's going to be destroyed. That doesn't mean a lot for you or me, but that's like saying the White House will disappear, the Pentagon, right? It was startling to them. So they had questions, which are quite natural. They said, when will these things be? And here's the key word. What will be the sign of your coming and the sign of the end of the age? So they did ask for signs, right? Now, there was a time they asked for a date, and Jesus said, no, there's, that's not in your hands. That's in the Father's hands. But when they asked for a sign, Jesus didn't say, none of your business. He didn't say, I'm not giving you a sign. That's a dumb question. By the way, disciples asked a lot of dumb questions. This wasn't one of them. And Jesus said, you've all heard this, you will hear of wars and rumors of wars, Matthew 24. Nation will rise against nation. Uh, there will be earthquakes and famines. The end is not yet. And then there will be great tribulation, such as the world has never seen since the beginning of time, and if those days weren't shortened, no flesh would survive. That period of great tribulation through all our world wars and conflicts has never happened yet, at least the way Jesus described. So there's a reason why we hear a lot about doom and gloom. Now, everybody skates over the first thing Jesus said. It's almost like we go right to this doom and gloom scenario. He said, very first verse, take heed, no one deceive you speaking particularly the Jewish nation, for many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. False Christ will arise, deceiving many. Spent all last week talking about a world leader coming that will finally bring peace to the world. Daniel said he's a great diplomat, he's a great orator. He will have the political, religious skills, economic skills to bring the world together in a way we've never seen, and we will see a golden age before we see some of this destruction. 
Now, remember when we started Revelation, I said I'll nerd out every once in a while? Well, that's what I'm going to do right now. I'm going to nerd out a little. This may go over your head, but I'm going to do it anyway, okay? So when Jesus talked about great tribulation, he wasn't talking about some esoteric epic of history that we couldn't figure out. It's a very documented time. In fact, it's so documented, it's in Daniel chapter 9, where Daniel says, 77s are determined upon my people, the nation of Israel, to bring about end and desolation. Now, the Jews did not count time in decades like we do, right? Like we watch the 70s show, we talk about the 80s, the 50s, right? They looked at time in sevens. Why? Because God created the world in seven days. He rested on the seventh. There are seven, seven, you know, six years you let the land grow, the seventh you let it rest. Seven of those sevens is 49. There's a year of Jubilee. Everybody kind of get that? 77 year periods, 490 years from the decree to rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah. 490 years, okay? 69 of them to usher in the Messiah, which we believe was Palm Sunday, when they laid down palm branches and declared that Jesus was the king. It was the only time he allowed it. He said the very stones would cry out. But then it says Messiah would be cut off, literally, crucifixion, thousand years before it happened. He would be cut off, but not for himself, and it left one seven-year period dangling out there. Great tribulation. Revelation 6 to 19, we've not ever seen this time period in all of history. When it begins, Jesus said it'll go very quickly, and there will be three years of peace, three and a half years of peace, three and a half years of war. Now, one overlooked thing before we get into Revelation. Jesus ended in Matthew 24 by saying that these signs are the beginning of birth pangs. But then he read them or told them a parable where he says, learn the parable from the fig tree when its branches have already become tender and put forth leaves. You know summer's coming, right? We're familiar with that, the spring, there's budding and so forth. So also you know when you see all these things, you know the end is near, it's at the very door. Surely I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away. Jesus said, my words will never pass away. If I can contemporize that, um, I just went to Starbucks. We're already getting Christmas coffee cups. So when you start to see Christmas coffee cups, you know Thanksgiving is near, right? That's kind of how it works. So Jesus said when you see these signs, there would be precursors to some of what we're going to see in this seven-year period. And I walked you through last time the white horse rider of Revelation 6, the first two verses. This white horse, this this man that goes out to conquer and conquer, he has a bow and no arrows, he, he doesn't have the crown, he has no authority. This is the coming world leader. Again, he'll bring about world peace. When the rapture comes and Christians are, are gone, this will be a man of peace. He will stabilize politically, economically, religiously, world systems. And Israel, we're told in the Old Testament, will make a covenant with death. They will align with this man, and you say, why in the world would they ever do that? You have to go there to understand. They live in a very bad neighborhood. They live in a neighborhood of nations that want to drive them physically and ideologically into the sea. The Arab nations that surround them, they are one-sixth of one percent of the landmass. Not one-sixth, one-sixth of one percent. 
The UN borders they were given in 1948 were called Auschwitz borders, seven mile indefensible radius of land by nations that want to destroy them. They are so desperate for peace. They are tired of living the way they've been living. Second Thessalonians chapter two, now brethren concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering to him, we ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled, either by spirit or by word or letter, as if the day of Christ had already come. Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first. The man of sin, the Antichrist is revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshiped. Now watch this. So that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself he is God. Paul said, don't you remember I told you all these things? The Bible very clearly says the Jews are going to rebuild their temple. There's going to be world peace. This man is going to defile the temple. Jesus said, remember what Daniel said. When Antiochus Epiphanes did the same thing. So, you know, the way Jews look at history is it has happened, and it is happening, it will happen. And now you know that what is restraining is restraining until he's revealed in his own time, for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who is now restraining will do so until he's taken away. There is a restraining force in our world, the power of the Holy Spirit through the church. The woman's always running to ride the beast. There's always been a political leader looking for world domination. There's always been a religious system trying to align politically. But the Holy Spirit's been restraining it. But in the second rider in Revelation, verse 3, John saw a seal open, and a living creature came forth, fiery red, and it was granted to that one to take peace from the earth, that people should kill one another, and there was given to him a great sword. This red horse rider is war. Notice the phrase, to take peace from the earth. The reason why the horse can take peace from the earth is because the Holy Spirit is restraining that now. You and I live in a restrained version of what the world one day is gonna look like. If you brought somebody from a far distant planet, showed them world history, and asked them to make an assessment of man's history on the earth, their assessment would be man's legacy has been war. Now, man's done incredible things. We've gone to the moon, we've eradicated diseases, we've built great cities. Man has done tremendous things made in the image of God. But the legacy of man on earth is war. Uh, war is defined as an act of conflict where a thousand lives are taken. In 3,400 years of recorded history, how many years of peace do you think there have been? 3,400 years. 268. 8% of the history of the world, we've known peace. Since the Roman Empire, we've only known, since the fall of the Roman Empire, we've only known 72 years. And then people try and make the argument, well, that was in the ancient world. We're modern now. Well, in the last century, a modern age, 108 million people lost their lives due to conflicts. Now, can I be Debbie Downer for 10 more seconds? Whenever a nation has built up a military-industrial complex, they've never not used them. Whenever a nation in the history of the world has ever built up a, mi a military-industrial complex, they've never not used it. 
We've got nuclear weapons facing every country in the world. The ones that don't have it, they're going to get it. I don't care who's president or what we do. And there is a restraining power only by God that is holding all this thing, these things together until this rider is released and we see the devastation man can bring upon the earth. These are birth pains. We're already seeing them. The fig tree is blossoming. Israel's in the land. But there will be a golden age of peace, like the days of Noah, when the last thing they thought is that judgment would ever come. Robert Mueller was the Assistant Secretary General of the UN. Um, that's not the Robert Mueller today who is investigating the Trump administration. Uh, he was one of the most learned men about uh, global affairs in the world. He served in the UN for 35 years. He was called the philosopher of the UN. He said there will be no third world war between major powers. Instead, we're headed for a new age, a new world, a new genesis, a true global, God-abiding, political, moral, and spiritual renaissance to make this planet at long last what it was always meant to be. Mueller said, the planet of God. Now, He's the Secretary General of the UN, and that is a noble thing he should want to see, and he should want to see the world at peace. And I think Christians, we should strive for peace. But let me say this, and I want to be very clear. The hope of a permanent and lasting peace by the UN or any other human effort is doomed to fail for one reason and one reason only. There can never be peace on this planet without the Prince of Peace. Without Jesus Christ, there will never be peace. And you say, well, Pastor Bob, how can you say that? Well, think about what we're going to celebrate in a couple months. Christmas. It's the greatest story ever told, right? Born in the straw poverty, a God who came to do for us what we can never do for ourselves. The mystery of godliness, he took on a body and became human. And what did Isaiah say thousands of years before? He prophesied a virgin would conceive and bring forth a son. His name shall be called Wonderful. There's been many wonderful people. He shall be a mighty counselor, many great counselors. How about a mighty God and an everlasting father? We've never seen that before. That baby in a manger was God himself, the prince of peace. And so there can be no peace without Jesus, no matter how hard man tries. I watched four hours of election returns Wednesday night, and I never heard God mentioned. And in most of what we hear in the UN, God is never mentioned. And listen, this is just logical. How can there be peace among nations when we don't even have peace in our homes or in our hearts? You know, every once in a while I'll watch um, movies with my adult kids. I have three girls. We watch a lot of romantic comedies. I'm not ashamed to admit it. I've seen them all. And, you know, every time we watch one of these, there'll be language or family dynamics of cursing and arguing and, you know, I feel, oh, why are we watching this? And then I always say at the end, you know, this was good for me to watch. Because it's a reminder, this goes on every day in so many homes. And I've been so far removed, I kind of grew up in a house like this. My parents were divorced, my mom remarried. We had a very dysfunctional uh, family. I remember my parents arguing and then going to bed and would stop. And then like 8.01, it would restart, like right on cue, they'd start arguing again. You know, the dishes flying in the air, cracking. I saw all that. We had a wedding for my stepsister. It was like every other wedding. And three quarters of the way through the wedding, a fight broke out. I'm talking about everybody in the, in the wedding party, all the attenders. 
Uh, you ever see those uh, movies where people are flying across the bar and glasses are going up? I'm telling you, I was 10 years old. This is what was going on. My stepdad was in a tux on the floor pounding a guy in his head. <laughs> Cops came and... So, I tell my kids, this is what I saw growing up. Uh, we have a plaque over our kitchen. It says, two uh, all because two people fell in love. Don't be impressed, you can buy it at Hallmark. <laughs> and I tell my kids, this is because two people fell in love with Jesus that you've grown up this way. Because even though we're imperfect, there was peace in our home because there was peace in our hearts. If you don't know Jesus, you don't know peace. You don't know lasting peace. Jesus said, my peace I leave you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives I give to you. Don't let your hearts be troubled. You know, the beautiful thing about when Christ comes into a life, circumstances don't change. God doesn't wave pixie dust and everything you've ever done goes away. But by and large, every Christ follower will tell you, I, I don't know how to explain this, but I've got a peace. And then later when we go through trials, they'll say, you know, I don't know why I feel the way I do, because things are really bad, but God has given me a peace. You ever feel that way? Because we get what the Bible calls a peace that passes understanding. In other words, your human mind doesn't comprehend it. Uh, you should be devastated, but God has given you this peace. That's the peace that Jesus longs to bring. Tim Keller has written a little pamphlet called The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness, The Path to True Christian Joy. And he writes about this peace where we know we're forgiven. You know, God has taken our sins and he's cast them as far as the east to the west to remember them no more. But see, part of our part is we have to remember that and live that way. The guilt is gone, guys. We can live in that peace. Tim Keller goes on to say, a truly gospel humble person, that's our goal, is not a self-hating person or a self-loving person. In other words, you're not, you're not putting sackcloth and ashes on saying, woe is me, I'm a worm. Neither are you bragging how great you are. Gospel humility is our goal. True gospel humility is a self-forgetful person whose ego is just like their toes. It just works. It doesn't draw attention to itself. The toes work, the ego works, neither does it draw attention to itself. When you come into relationship with Jesus Christ, there is a peace to where you have a strong confidence. You don't really care what others think because you know what God thinks. And you know what he's done. One of my favorite places in Jesus' ministry was his baptism. And he walks into those waters and he hasn't even started his ministry and a voice comes out of heaven and says, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. God was pleased with him before he ever did one act of ministry. And I want to say the same to you. The thief on the cross never went out witnessing. He never gave in an offering. He never did all the things we love and enjoy doing for God. And he would be the first one. Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. God loves you so much. And the peace he wants to put in your heart is amazing. And he demonstrated with disciples, right? How many times were these august fishermen out in a boat on the waters they had navigated all of their lives, sometimes with Jesus in the boat, but he fell asleep, only to be afraid because of a storm, and then he would say, peace be still. And what he was setting them up and us up for was storms will rage in our lives. Trouble is available every day, Proverbs says. Just the sparks fly upwards. 
We go through troubles, we go through storms, but there is a peace that only God could give. One of my favorite worship songs is by Kristen DeMarco. Grander earth has quaked before, moved by the sound of his voice. Seas that have been shaken and stirred have become and broken for my regard. And this is her personalizing it. And through it all, my eyes are on you, and it is well with my soul. That's a person who found peace. It is well with my soul. Now this peace is going to be taken from this world. And war is going to break out. I hope you know Jesus, and I hope you know peace. Now, after this horse rides, we see another horse. Verse 5. He opened a third seal, and I heard a third living creature say, Come and see, and I looked, and behold, a black horse. And he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not hurt the oil or the wine. Uh, this black horse rider is famine. Famine always follows war. Whenever you use all the resources that God has given for war and conflict, uh, famine is what happens. Now, please understand me. Where we live today, I applaud the work of Bill and Melinda Gates, Warren Buffett, Bono, and all the church is doing to alleviate suffering and poverty. Uh, many have it in their, go their goal to end extreme poverty in our lifetime, and there's nothing wrong with that. But where our world is headed is for a famine that no one could even comprehend or understand. And when this rider rides, uh, it will be a brutal scenario. And remember, God has given us the power to create wealth. He's given plenty of food on the planet. Most of extreme poverty today has been caused by man, just to be honest. And we're going to see it again when this rider rides. A lot of people wonder, a quart of wheat for denarius, three quarts of barley for denarius, don't hurt the oil and the wine. What does that mean? Well, what it's saying is conditions will be so bad, it will take a day's wage to buy one meal. So think about what you make for a day. You can just barely buy breakfast. That's how bad it's going to be. But don't harm the luxury items. We think we have rich and poor now. Wait till we see what goes on in this age. There will still people, even during this time of utter judgment, who won't think God is judging, and they'll want to hold on to the good life that they have. The next rider is in verse 7. He opened his mouth, the fourth seal was broken, and I heard a creature say, Come and see, and I looked, and behold, a pale horse. And the name of him who sat on it was death and hell, and power was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with the sword, with hunger, with death, and the beast of the earth. When this rider goes out, and we'll see it in more detail as we go through Revelation, a third of the sea will turn to blood, a third of the earth will be burned. I mean, there will be death on a scale that, again, we've never seen in the history of the world, and this will be the judgment of God. Um, the fifth seal, where the martyrs under heaven, I'll talk to them next week. Look at verse 12, the sixth seal. I look, and he opened the sixth seal, and behold, there was a great earthquake. The sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon like blood. The stars of heaven fell to the earth as a fig tree drops in late, its late figs when it's shaken by a mighty wind. The sky receded like a scroll when it is rolled up, and every mountain and island moved out of its place. Now, John is seeing something he can't comprehend. 
So he puts it in language that makes sense to him. Now, what are we looking at here? Well, what we're looking at here is God as creator will step in and he will shake the heavens. But Ezekiel 37, 38, and 39 are very interesting chapters of the Old Testament. When we get to the Battle of Armageddon, only mentioned by that name in Revelation, I'll talk more about this. It talks about the restoration of Israel thousands of years before it happened. It talks about a contingency of armies that come from the north to invade Israel and a war, right? I've been to the Valley of Megiddo. Napoleon said it was the most natural battlefield he ever saw. But in Ezekiel 39, listen to this. When, when this war ends, they will send in professionals, a search team, that will look for men's bones, and when they find a man's bones, they will put a marker by it until the burners, the other professionals, come and bury it. Now, these verses have been read to military professionals, and this is textbook, Ezekiel 39, for what a nuclear cleanup will look like. Is God going to allow an exchange of nuclear weapons? I already said man has never not used a weapon he's invented. Look at the imagery. The moon turns to blood. The, the sun doesn't give its light. It looks like nuclear winter. The, the sky recedes like a scroll. Stars are falling like figs. Looks something like that, doesn't it? Now, Joel kind of gave the same imagery Peter talked about on the day of Pentecost, whether this is God stepping in or God allowing this to happen, I don't know, but it's going to be devastating. And it goes on to say, even despite all of this, verse 15, the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave, every free, will hide themselves in the caves and the mountains and say to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of lamb, they will know, like Pharaoh, that God is God and every knee will bow. For the great day of his wrath has come and who is able to stand? And of course the answer is no one. And listen, no one's gonna stand in that day and no one can stand in this day. If you're standing in your own righteousness, if you're standing in, God's going to judge on the curve. If you're standing in, I've been a good person, you can't stand. If good people went to heaven and bad people go to hell, then why did Christ come? It makes no sense. He came because all we like sheep have gone astray, every man to himself. We're all lost. We're all in the need of a wonderful Savior. And in that day, who can stand? Now, there's going to be 144,000 of Israel that can stand. We'll talk about them next week. There's going to be martyrs that we see in these seals. Talk about them next week. There's going to be people coming through the Great Tribulation. There are people that are going to find grace, like they found in the days of Noah. But a better question is this. Why does it have to be this way? Why is God doing this? Now, I shared with you before, God, judgment is God's strange work. What he longs to do is save. You know, the reason why there's been such a gap is God is long-suffering, hoping that everybody would get saved. But judgment is his strange work. It's a work he doesn't long to do. It's a work he must do. The book of Exodus is fascinating. There are theologians who believe Exodus is a mini-Bible. And you know in Exodus, there's a story of God bringing his people out of Egypt and judging Egypt, who had enslaved them, 
for 400 years. Now, when we think of judgment, oftentimes judgment is collective. You say, Pastor Bob, what the heck does that mean? Well, think about in our own country. Think about slavery, a terrible evil. We're still reaping the consequences of it today. In some ways, slavery was a collective judgment. The person who understood that the most was the man who fought for it, Abraham Lincoln. Listen to what Lincoln said. He said, finally do we hope fervently, and we do pray, that this mighty scourge of war, the Civil War, where we lost thousands of lives, will speedily pass away, yet if God wills uh, that it continue until every drop of blood uh, drowned with the lash shall be paid by another drawn with the sword, as it was said 3,000 years ago, and then he quotes Psalm 1910, the judgments of the Lord are righteous and true altogether. You know what Lincoln was saying? He goes, we hope that this scourge of war is over for what we've done in this country, but maybe God's hand is every single human being would die by the sword. And what he was saying is if that's what God wanted, then God, it was okay with him if God did that. In other words, a collective guilt. We saw it in World War II. Tens of thousands of lives were given. In Exodus, very interesting, God judges the Egyptians with 10 plagues. Now, I've said this 100 times. God could have just given the Pharaoh and all the leaders the flu, and Israel would have marched out. I had the flu last year. I was miserable. I couldn't even get out of bed. I didn't care if the world ended. It's all God had to do. They would have marched right out. Instead, God systematically broke down collectively the nation of Egypt. And here's what he did. This is fascinating. The Egyptians worshipped the sun, Ra, that was a god. The Nile was a god, the frogs. All the plagues were God systematically taking apart their belief system. They believed in the world around them, the wonderful gift of nature and creation God had given them had become God. Romans chapter 1 talks about judgment. We will get there. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Listen, who suppress the truth and unrighteousness because what may be known of God is not only in them but was shown to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made. In other words, the creation, even his eternal power and Godhood. Notice this, so that man is without excuse. Because although they knew him as God, they didn't glorify him as God, nor were they thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man, birds of the air, four-footed animals, creeping things. Therefore, God will give them over to strange lusts and all. The Egyptians traded the glory of God in creation, but they never looked at the creator. They began to worship those things. Pastor Bob, that was 3,000 years ago. We're not like that today. Walk into any top university. They will laugh you to scorn at a creation story and a creator who created the universe. 
and science will have all the answers. I'm not against science, I'm just saying science has all the answers and this wonderful system that God created is now a series of laws and beautiful truths and it governs us and there is no longer a creator. Seven is a very interesting number in scripture. Seven days in a week, seven notes on a musical scale, seven colors in a rainbow. We always think that's the number of completeness and it is. But there's something else about the number seven. God creates the world in six days, he rests on the seventh. When Moses is giving the Ten Commandments, they're told to keep holy the Sabbath, that's the seventh day. Why God created the world in six days, he rested on the seventh. Uh, two of the feasts that God gave us, Passover and Tabernacles, have seven days. In John, Jesus had seven I am statements, seven miracles. There are more sevens in Revelation than any book in the Bible. Seven is not only the number of completeness, but points to God as creator. God is the creator. And as part of his judgment, he will step in even to the sun, the moon, the stars. You know why? Because they're all insignificant to him. They were all created for you and me. In fact, in Genesis 1, it says he created the larger light and the lesser light. You know why it's called that by Moses? Because the sun and the moon were already deified in culture when Moses wrote that. And then it says, oh, and by the way, he created the stars. Not a big deal for God. And man who has worshipped the creation more than the creator, these things will systematically be judged one by one so that at the end there will be no doubt that God is the creator and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess either the right way or the wrong way that he is God. And what we saw in Exodus will come to pass. Remember, Jewish thinking is different than ours. It has happened, it is happening, it will happen. There were antichrists in the past, there's an antichrist spirit today, antichrist is coming. God took them out of Egypt, he's taking you and I out of spiritual Egypt, he's gonna deliver us one more time. I wanna leave you with this final thought, and I prayed about it this week, and God really opened my eyes to it. Um, these are the opening of the seals. Remember that scene in heaven? There's that great worship around the throne of God. And then they see uh, a seal, a scroll with seven seals, and there's no one worthy, and then Jesus is there, the lamb, and he's worthy. So we're watching these seals being opened. In the ancient world, there were no books. There were parchments made out of animal skins, and then there were um, scrolls that were made out of papyrus. If you go to Israel, we go to the dome of the book, you'll see the Dead Sea Scrolls, you'll see what parchment looks like. So let's say there was a book of the Bible, a small book, 1 John, it might be one papyrus. Revelation is probably 15 that have been sewn together and then rolled into a scroll, right? Seals were put on it so no one could break the seals unless they were the rightful owner. Jesus is the rightful owner, he has the title deed to the earth. Here's what I love about this, it's beautiful. Do you realize God has revealed everything to us that we need? In Isaiah, God said, I am God, and this is how I'll prove it, I'll tell you the end from the beginning. That's why there's over 1,022 prophecies in the Bible, most of them fulfilled in Christ's first coming. Over and over, God says, you know, I'm gonna tell you things before they happen. Jesus said, I'm telling you these things because you're my friends. I no longer call you servants, but friends, and I wanna tell my friends what I'm about to do. The beautiful thing about the day we live in is the seals have been broken. We don't 
We are not part of a religious system where religious professionals are telling us what some book says. God has unsealed it and put it on our laps, right before us. Every time the church was empowered with the word of God, it exploded. When we were told that it was only for the clergy and not for the masses, we entered into the Middle Ages. So I want to leave you with this final thought. You hold in your book, in, in, in your laps, a book that is unsealed. There is a God who longs to speak and to reveal things to you, even secret things. Remember Jesus said, don't cast your pearls before swine? Well, think of the front part of that verse. He's, he, verse, he's giving you pearls, truths. As we live through this world, there are truths that we're holding on to that are real and we're gonna live in the reality then that we're loved and we're saved and heaven's our future. And I wanna end every week like this, but while we're here, we need to be salt and light. We need to be ambassadors of the good news because people are looking for peace in all the wrong places. I flew back from California recently at a five and a half hour flight and I had three millennials behind me. They were quite loud, so I heard their whole conversation. Glad I'm her I heard it. This one girl dated a guy for four years. They broke up. She bought four self-help books. I knew the authors. I had read some of the books. And she went to Utah for a week and camped in the mountains by herself to kind of come to peace with herself. And my heart just broke. Because there's a loving God who wants to speak through this book and fill our hearts. And we're looking in all the wrong places. I was looking in all the wrong places. So were you probably. And then blessed were the feet of somebody who brought you the good news. Someone who opened their mouth. Someone who said, you know what? There is a God you're looking for, and he's gentle and kind, and a bruised reed he will not break, and every hair on your head is numbered, and he wants to be involved in your life. And it wasn't anything that we'd ever seen. It wasn't anything like religion, but it was alive, and they brought us to the waters where we could drink, and it was beautiful and wonderful. We need to pass that on. Because... There is a time coming, again, where God will do his strange work. So I'm excited for the times we're living in. I'm excited for the things God has for us. 